0: stories of life and faith and uh, we introduced this concept last week of being called a friend of God previous to this we spoke about loneliness we spoke about healing right Uh, we spoke about finding God in unexpected places and my interest in this as I've told you is evangelical in nature actually Considering how we will witness to our faith in this larger culture. So in a culture where, though we are surrounded by noise and uh, forms of communication, there is a real prevalence of loneliness. Uh, as a church, I think that we need to consider what it means that God heals today. Physically, spiritually, emotionally, mentally, and otherwise. And heals corporately. Heals the people. So we looked at Healing. Uh, Finding God in unexpected places, I remember telling the story of the Liggetts, part of their story, and realizing as we speak to friends and family members and others that that sharing our faith is not simply about bringing people to church, though that would be at times part of it, but also being able to discern the presence of God in someone else's life positively. And so we talked about how that can happen at even extreme times. And then we get to the story of my friend Barney, uh, this is Carol Pilgrim's. yeah, you just you know him, I guess, because that's the response. Um, Carol Pilgrim's dad, who died in 2010, 2011, um, and who was a real mentor in my life. Barney was, and when I read about Abraham being called a friend of God, I think about my friend Barney, who, in my mind and memory, I kind of call him a monastic cookie salesman, though I never knew him when he was a cookie salesman. He was retired by the time I knew him. Uh, And he wasn't a traditional form of monastic, but he was like a monastic living in Edgemont Village. Uh, And he was a friend of God. I told you last week, I'll just show you a couple more, that he used to bring me these sheets, and we would meet for an hour and a half, two hours. You had to give Barney time. Uh, This one says, Todd, smile, Genesis 22, 7, Calvary before creation, awesome. He loved the word awesome. Uh, I would argue he may have overused it. In brackets, he has totally awesome. (laughs) After Jesus provided for the salvation of my soul, and he has those in block letters, my soul, then he made all the joys of the universe for you, and then he's got in brackets, BG equals Barney Gordon, for you to enjoy. He was always personalizing this, even as he gave it to me. This, I copied a bunch of this too, because he had binders and binders full of this stuff. They weren't all, they didn't all say Todd on the top. So I saw some of the binders, and I said, "Can I borrow a couple of those and copy some of these? So this comes from one of those. So he didn't write this to me in particular, but he's dated it. September 10th, 1997, that I am cleansed and consecrated and pure and holy and sanctified in Christ may it be so father may it be so by thy grace please may it be so for thy servant barney gordon he was a friend of god and such a key part in my life early in my time as youth minister and growing in what it means to be a pastor uh, my son matthew said uh, when we got home last sunday afternoon and when i got home he gets there before i do uh, he said, actually, that was a good sermon today, Dad. Which, you know, when you say it like that, you're like, oh, okay. Um, he liked hearing about Barney. He didn't really know about him. He was just a little, little boy at the time. Friend of God. And I obviously want to ask you, and I don't know that all of us could be held by this moniker. Some of us, our faith is, is we struggle to hold it as a Friendship. But it does come up in our scriptures, this term, and Jesus speaks to this in what I'll read in a moment, is the scripture reading. Let me read, actually let me do that now, before I turn to Abraham. Uh, I don't know if we can switch to that on the screen, the scripture reading. If not, it doesn't, it's okay, I can just read it. Jesus speaking to his disciples just before the crucifixion. That my joy may be in you and that your joy may be full. That was one of Barney's favorite verses. This is my commandment, that you love one another as I have loved you. Now I'm going to ask the Holy Spirit to speak to you as I read the next verse. Okay? Because particularly if you've been in church for a number of years, you just hear this, oh, it's this verse. Picture Jesus Christ saying this to his followers right before his crucifixion. the Father in my name. He may give it to you. These things I command you so that you will love one another. We'll stop there at 17. Friendship of God is something clearly that finds its completion in Jesus Christ our Lord, but it is something that comes up not only in the New Testament, but in the Old Testament. The father of our faith, right back to Uh, like after prehistory in in scripture where we see history properly beginning that early father of our faith Abraham the term friend of God pertaining to him comes up three times and so there's enough in this next little point that you'll just have something to walk home with because the first time it comes up is in 2nd Chronicles 20 in reference to a king named Jehoshaphat there you go that's worthwhile to go to church and hear about Jehoshaphat, because that's something that's in your memory. Jehoshaphat, the king of, of Judah, when the kingdom was divided into Judah and Israel. And for those who don't read scripture often, or even for those who do, Jehoshaphat was faced, and his people were faced with all kinds of ites, I-T-E-S, Moabites, Edomites, Right? And normally, not all the time, but normally in the Bible, when you see a bunch of ites, you know that something bad might be happening. Or they're referring back to, remember when we defeated the Edomites and the Ammonites and uh, all the other ites? So, Jehoshaphat has a bunch of ites that are coming upon the land. And as king, he doesn't really have a sense of how they could get through this. And so he prays to God. And when he prays to God, the scripture there says that he stood in the company. So he's a leader in the company of people. He stood in the company and he prayed so that others could hear him. Dear God over all, as you were with our fathers, as you gave this land to Abraham, your friend. Hear that? Would you bless us today facing this? See how you take the faith of someone else, even who has come before and you claim it in your own prayer. Some of you heard of the—I don't have this. I, I wasn't. This just came into my mind that in Egypt, I think was it two days ago, there was this terrible attack where over 300 people have been killed. And you know what that attack is about, right? That is, it would be uh, like it's a mosque, so it's not a church, but it's a gathering place. So you can draw the parallel to a place like this. And the group of Muslim worshippers that are gathering in that particular mosque were from a branch of Islam called, called Sufism. Sufism in, in Islam is kind of the mystical part of their faith. So that's where you get like whirling dervishes and different things. And Christianity has a mystic side as well that, that we're really indebted to. It's not so much the Plymouth Brethren history, but it's a key part of our history. Sufism in Islam, uh, ISIS and other extremists don't consider those people to be Muslims. Because, you know why? Because they, one of the practices in Sufism is to pray invoking the names of people who have died before. And they'll set up something like altars. And so groups like ISIS, which is a Sunni Muslim group, they will say that those Sufis are practicing polytheism. That's a real no-no in, in Islam. So because they're praying to people not just to God. And so they say, and I read a little bit of this even this morning, so it's okay to kill those people. Christian faith. Some of you grew up thinking that Catholicism was non-Christian, which by the way you were there's a little bit of uh, bad teaching if if that's what you were taught. <laughs> Catholicism like Plymouth Brethrenism or whatever can can push some things to excess and one of these things that people find difficult to understand is praying to saints or invoking Mary's name right? I don't want to unpack it all but I want to say here Jehoshaphat prays to God. That's who he's praying to. He's not praying to Abraham. But dear God in the name of Abraham your friend see how the faith works? See how I can pray and say thank you Lord that I New Barney. It doesn't mean that I think Barney has some special power to do something particularly for me. 300 years later, at the time of exile, another troubled time. In exile, poetry always breaks out. At times where people are pushed to the margins, uh, you get in scripture this flowering of poetic language and song. You get things like Isaiah 40, comfort ye, comfort ye my people. From Isaiah 40, you get Handel's Messiah, right? In Isaiah 41, God is speaking words of comfort to the people. This is now the words of God through the mouth of the prophet. Do not fear, for I am with you, even though you're facing this difficult time. Do not fear, for I am with you. Verse 8. But you, Israel, Jacob, my servant. What's happening there, do you know? Who's Israel and who's Jacob? Well, they're the same. Remember, Jacob wrestling with the angel and he's given a new name and that name is Israel. But you, Israel, Jacob, my servant, it's more personal. God, knowing your name, you who I have chosen, and then this, the offspring of Abraham, my friend. And then in the New Testament, the book of James, where the conversation that is happening is about faith and works in a letter to a church. Is your religious devotion made up of faith or works? And of course, this book will say, well, if you can't show me any works, I doubt that you have any faith. (laughs) But your faith is not made up of works. But if you have true faith, there's going to be fruit. And then brings up Abraham. Abraham believed, and that was credited to him as righteousness. And he was called a friend of God. And then this beautiful text from last Sunday and today, Jesus saying, greater love has no one than this, that they lay down their life for their friends. You take Abraham in his time and us in our time, and I put before you the question, whether you could think of this possibly or whether you would like to, could you be called in the mouths of other people a friend of God? This is a gift in our faith. In Abraham's time, the gods were not considered friendly at all. Oh, these are pictures that Ross sent me. I'll have to, I got the wrong order. Uh, In Abraham's time, the gods, small g, were not considered friendly at all. Remember in Genesis 31, when Sarah takes the household gods? Abram, who becomes Abraham, is called to leave his settled life, and he takes his family and the whole entourage, and they leave. But Sarah takes the household gods. Why? And you know what the household gods were? They were just little idols. Why would she take them? She takes them because there's still a sense in their understanding that we better take these things like good luck charms almost. But we have to appease these gods for things to go well. And then remember Laban comes to find them. And, he's, and she pretends, she sits down on the gods. And it's one of these like interesting scripture verses. She says, I can't get up because it's that time of month for me. Literally what the text says. Because she's sitting on the household gods. And what were those gods like? Those were gods to be appeased. They were unfriendly gods. There was never in this big of, of of deities friendly gods. Even if they had an attribute of friendliness there would be a real dark side to that. And they were to be appeased. What's interesting to me is, and Eugene Peterson talks about this when he writes about Abraham being a friend of God, is that the gods of our time, small g, so now you have to say, what would the gods of a secular culture be? And I understand that a real secularist would say, well, they're not gods. But still, what, what are the things that we hold in high esteem and worship and think, uh, for things to go well for me, this has to happen? And I would maintain that those gods in our secular culture are still unfriendly. It's how you teach your kids. Right? You better do the following things to make it in this world because nobody's going to just give you anything. Competition. Not friendly forces necessarily, but these things that sound so good, success, the God of success or security or happiness, they are in some ways malign forces, all of them. But we need to add in our faith and religion a third category, in religious understanding. That much of religious understanding, including Christian faith, has sometimes seen God as enemy. In other words, what I mean by that is God is against me. And the primary way that I make sense of myself in the world is by goodness and badness, sin and not sin. And so some of you were growing up in a church like this or another church and you heard about someone who had sinned. Maybe it was sexual sin. Maybe it was, remember that term backsliding? We've been backsliding, not using the term backsliding. But anyway, those of you who don't know it, we can explain it. But somebody had sinned. And that sin became the definition of that person in your understanding. You would say things like, they are far from the Lord. And I would always ask myself growing up, who's far from the Lord? He's come near to each of us. They may be living as if they don't know that God is close. But that term, far from the Lord, backsliding, shows you that there was an understanding that primarily the way that we make sense of things is what is God against? This is, I'm going to say it nicely, but strongly, I hope, this is a throwback to pagan religion. It has little to do with Jesus Christ and how he has given his life for us and lots to do with the fearful old household gods. So what do you do about sin? Well, the way you're convicted of your sin is to realize the depth of the love of God. Now, I want to be careful. I don't want to arm you with some denigration of the past as if they did terrible things because they didn't. We stand on their shoulders. I just spoke about my friend Barney. So you don't need to use this against someone from an older generation. Please don't do that. But it's how these things can get translated that even in religious faith, God can become someone who has this almost enemy-like categorizing, determining people and thinking, well, if that person sinned that way, then that entirely defines what God thinks of them. Abraham was different from the start. When I put Abraham and Barney and God, whenever I hear Barney, I think of Barney Gordon, but I'm, I'm mindful in our culture that some people might think of Barney the dinosaur. But anyway, or you do now. Uh, Barney the dinosaur was a big part of our life then too because Aiden. Was really into Barney the dinosaur, so that's one thing we'll never let him live down. But anyway, Abraham, the voice of God comes to Abraham and says, Leave your settled life, and Abraham did. Karl Barth says, What Abraham must do is that he must pass from a well known past to a future which is only just opening up. What this sounds like is a friendship, where Abraham is following not a series of steps and direction. But he is developing a relationship with God that is like a friendship and he's trusting his friend. Abraham is not in love with a dream or a function or an achievement or a promise. Abraham is in love with God. That's why I use my friend Barney as the illustration of this. He is one of the people in my life who has been in love with God, not simply what God can do or has done. The test of this in your life, it's a challenge that you could open your eyes. You consider your relationship with God. And is your relationship with God so that, right, dot, 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 so that I will feel peace, so that I will be secure, so that I don't have to be afraid? Those are all good things. And there is are, there are, promise after promise after promise in Scripture about what God will do for us. But are you in love with that promise or are you, are you in love with God? And trust me, as I say this, I know that many of you in this place, I know this, would say, I don't really know what that means. Well, then we have work to do. <laughs> because the promise of life in Jesus Christ is that you can say and others can say about you they were in love with God. And that was Abraham. Not a life or a lifestyle, not significance for your life or for the church, not the promise of a well-ordered life, but in love with God. Abraham did this thing then. He built altars everywhere all the time. Today our memory is sometimes directed by photos and photo books. Though what's interesting, though people take way more photos than they used to, because we all, like I could take a picture of you right now. There, did it, right? Honestly, some of you think, did he really? I I honestly might have. I don't know, because I don't know how this works. But anyway, (laughs) you take so many more photos than you used to, but you don't look at them. But our memory is still dictated by these like photo books, photo albums, whatever. Back then, you didn't have that. There's no picture of Abraham or Abram. But one of the things that Abram did was he would build altars. This he had in common with my friend Barney. So Abram would take what some of us would consider a rather mundane part of his life, and so he would be praying to God somewhere, and would something would be revealed to him in a prayer. So he'd set up a little pile of rocks, and he'd say, this is where God spoke to me about this. They're not pyramids they're not monuments they're not bank buildings which are the new cathedrals in our time used to be shopping malls but those are now being bulldozed abram is setting up these small monuments these altars to god's interaction in his life and barney did that this is um isn't isn't ross awesome I said to Ross, can you take a picture of the little altar thing? Because this is where Ross and Carol are right now. They're down in the States for American Thanksgiving. And when you walk into the trailer, and it really is just a trailer, to hear Barney talk about it, it, you know, it would seem like... uh, It's the nicest place in in the world. But that's because God's been with him there. So Barney has set this little altar up, or he's got a Bible there, and he's he's made uh, plaques with inscriptions, and that plaque says, this book led us to this awesome place. And there's family photos there. I'll read it. Deuteronomy chapter 8, verses 1 to 10. This totally awesome book. I told you he overuses awesome. Anyway. Every page, every word led us to this very place. Thank you, Father. Thank you, Lois and Barney. Friend of God. I remember when Aiden was born. I'm, I'm sensitive to the fact that, like, with your first child, you can think sometimes these things more. So I did something similar when Matthew was born, but, but when Aiden was born, this really sticks in my mind. Uh, My mom was the property manager for a building right across the street from the hospital at the time. And my Nana also lived there, and we would visit, and we would write. And we would be in in a basement hallway very often. And it was just about the most mundane, you know, nothing to it basement, apartment basement hallway. You know, one door opened up to those storage lockers that, like, what kind of weird, weird place is this, that type, and just just Nothing. And then I remember Aiden was born, and, I, and we parked our car at my mom's apartment building because you didn't have to pay. And uh, I came back, said goodbye to Aiden, this new little baby of ours, and Jen. And I walked back, and I walked through that hallway, and something dawned on me. This hallway is hallowed now. And I wrote a little journal, journal entry that I called The Hallowed Hallway. And I said, dear God, I've walked through this place hundreds of times, and it's just been to get through it but now I'm on my knees before you. How could you be so good to us? Do you do this in your life? Ask the Holy Spirit to guide you. Barney was a major altar builder. These words of Jesus Christ that I would offer you to hear as words of healing. Verse 12 and 13. This is my commandment, that you love one another as I have loved you. Greater love has no one than this, that someone lay down their life for their friends. You are my friends if you do what I command you. This is my command, that you love one another as I have loved you. We're being given an opportunity in evangelism in the next 5, 10, 15, 20 years. That knowing that God has called us in Jesus Christ friends that we can demonstrate such love to the world. Lay down your life for your friends. Sometimes in our religion we need to lighten up. We can think here's what I want or demand from my life, from my kids, from my church, from family. Here's what I need. Here's what I want. Here's what's wrong with the world. Here's what's wrong with others. You're more mindful of that often than what's wrong with you. Can you see again that instead of that as a religious engine, instead of that disturbance, though we live in a world of real pain, sorrow, darkness, and sin, instead of an engine of being upset, Could you see that the heart of your faith could be that he who has given his life for you has called you friend? Come, Holy Spirit. When you get this, when you begin to, you just want to be with him. how you be with Jesus Christ, we say, by the power of the Holy Spirit. And when you are with him, your view of other people is softened. You begin to understand what it means to love with a love like his, a self-giving love rather than a condemning love, which is no real love at all. our faith still needs to come out of its pagan shadow. This is not blindness to our sin. It's an awareness that Jesus Christ is greater to our sin, greater than our sin, and it's an awakening to life in Jesus Christ. I'm going to pray. I'm going to pray for the communion, and uh, we'll, I'll pray for the offering as well. We'll take the offering right after the communion. Again, as we say virtually every time we take communion, this is for people who know Jesus Christ or would like to. We offer the gift that you don't have to take communion if you don't feel yourself in one of those two descriptions. We also offer the gift that if you need to let this communion pass because you have someone that you need to make things right with, uh, that's in our scriptures, that, that you let it pass Let the communion go by, you go and make amends, and then the next time you receive communion, you realize the forgiveness of Jesus Christ. So sometimes not taking communion can be a spiritual practice for Christians as well. On the night that he was betrayed, Jesus took the bread and he broke it, and he said that it was his body given for the life of the world. He took the cup after supper, and it was a real thing, not a little plastic, uh, but anyway. He took that cup of wine after the supper, and he said this, he referred to it as his blood. And we know in the scriptures that that blood represents for us the forgiveness of sins in him whose blood was poured out. It's more than the symbol of his love for us, but you can hear this morning as we receive Greater love has no one than this, that they lay down their life for their friends. Let's pray. Come, Holy Spirit, and guide us as we receive. I pray that you would speak uh, your truth, your presence, as we take this bread and this cup. In that, I pray, Heavenly Father, that you would anoint it by your presence and make it more than simply symbolic. May we receive what you, Lord Jesus, have done for us. And then would you compel us to go live this faith in the world, to love others with the love that we have known in you. We thank you that you have indeed revealed everything that the Father has shown you and that we know that this love is still the hope of the world. Bless this church, we pray. We thank you. We ask your blessing also on the offering as it's taken.